0: Good morning. Um, Like Ben mentioned, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 48. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to hell of fire. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say imply, yes or no, anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do you even ta- Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This is the very word of God.
1: Well, we're studying the Sermon on the Mount, and we ended last week with verse 20. So let's look at that verse again as we get started with what follows. Listen to these weighty words from Jesus. I've been pondering them a lot. Listen to what he says. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. The last part of that verse, by the way, is emphatic. Jesus isn't joking. If you and I do not have a righteousness to a greater degree than what the scribes and Pharisees possessed, there is zero chance that we will be found in the kingdom of heaven. So where then will we be found if not in the kingdom of heaven? To be outside the kingdom of heaven, as you saw several times mentioned in these passages, is to be under the judgment of God. So this really is a serious warning that Jesus makes in verse 20. It's a serious concern that he has and that he is warning us who would be disciples of Jesus to take note of. In the rest of chapter 5, which we're looking at today, Jesus gives six examples of the kinds of exceeding righteousness that he expects of those who wish to enter his kingdom. Here we find essentially six test cases for how you and I must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. So you can can take a test this morning. You can evaluate yourself to some degree on these six examples where Jesus explains the greater righteousness that we must have. Now, when you look at these six examples here, and most of your Bibles probably have them broken down for you with nice little headings so you can count them quite quickly. There's, There's six of them. Uh, there's an interesting three-part pattern to each of them. They all start with something like, you have heard that it was said. Then the second part is followed by Jesus' words, but I say to you, in which he seems to offer something of a correction or a clarification for how we often understand or interpret Old Testament law, Old Testament expectations, biblical expectations. Finally, then, the third part is we see Jesus' prescription for how we can pursue the greater righteousness that characterizes the kingdom. So this morning, as we look at these six test cases, these six examples in which we can see whether or not We possess a righteousness greater than the scribes and Pharisees. I want to use that three-part pattern as our guide to reading these six examples. In this way, we will see, first, the righteousness that God expects. Second, the ways in which we fall short of it. And third, how we can pursue it. The righteousness God expects, the righteousness we often lack, and the righteousness that we are to pursue. Okay, so first, notice here, and this really is important. I mean, as we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount, we've we've gone slowly to try to emphasize this point over and over and over again. There is a righteousness, there is a way of being in the world, that God expects, indeed requires, of all of his citizens. If you want to be in the kingdom of God and not... Outside the kingdom and under God's judgment, then there is a, a way of being in the world that God requires, expects of us. Verse 21 brings up one of the Ten Commandments, number six, you shall not murder. Now, of course, when Jesus says, but I say to you, in verse 22, he is not speaking an antithesis, if by that you think he's saying, well, never mind that. Go ahead and murder if you want. I got something else to deal with. You know, you shouldn't read your Bible that way. So how about the second test case, beginning in verse 27? Here, Jesus raises the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. So when Jesus says, but I say to you, again, Jesus is not now saying, well, adultery is not that big a deal. There's something else you need to be concerned with. And the same is true with all the other ones. The issue of divorce in verse 31. Jesus is not more lenient than the Old Testament commands, the Old Testament law. The greater righteousness that is required is in fact, if we're just being honest, more strict than what everyone in Jesus' day would have thought was required by Old Testament law. Hmm, greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. More strict, you might even say, than the scribes and Pharisees. Now that might surprise you, to think that that's what Jesus is doing. But so strict was Jesus' teaching on divorce, for example, that his disciples would be led to say in Matthew 19.10, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. So, notice that this is gonna hold true for all six of Jesus' examples. Unless you, res- uh, unless you go to some sort of creative maneuvering which we talked about at the beginning of this sermon series, with Jesus' teachings here, you're going to be forced to deal with the reality that Jesus, when he demonstrates what he means by a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, is not redefining righteousness as if it no longer has anything to do with external behavior, morals, and ethics. He is saying that... Those kinds of things that are anticipated and expected and understood straight off the top of the Ten Commandments are not good enough. They don't go far enough. They're not strict enough, you might say. The scribes and Pharisees, known for their intense interest in conforming in every way possible to the Mosaic Law, were not actually going far enough for what true righteousness is all about. In other words, to enter the kingdom of God, we have to push the throttle down further than even they were willing to go. But it would also be a mistake then to think that Jesus wants his people to be more pharisaical than the Pharisees. The Pharisees have the right idea. Jesus is talking here about a righteousness that we do but they are seriously misdirected in their quest. The way the Pharisees were pursuing this righteousness is way off track, as anyone who just does a quick reading of the Gospels will pick up on real quickly, right? Jesus and the Pharisees, they ha- they're not exactly seeing eye to eye. Okay, so surely what Jesus is doing here is trying to get us back on track. The issues that he addresses here are important issues. The sixth commandment, the seventh commandment, the ninth commandment is mentioned, plus issues involving truthfulness, issues involving retributive justice and love for neighbor. These are weighty issues, especially in a first century context. And Jesus wants us, no, no, Jesus demands that we keep these commandments. He's not letting us off the hook. He's not saying, I got a different way of explaining this. The Pharisees demanded that we keep the commandments, and in that, they were right. Remember what we learned last week? Jesus did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. God's people are still expected to live by biblical expectations and standards. We can't loosen Even one of the commandments Jesus said, or we will find ourselves outside his kingdom. But yet, as you read through these six examples, as Jeremy was reading them, or as you've pondered them, you've read these verses before, right? Perhaps you find yourself saying, (laughs) I can't do it. I always come up short. I'm a sinner. I'm not perfect. To that, Jesus, I think, would say, duh, of course. Uh, That's obvious. Of course you're a sinner. But don't think for a moment that Jesus is here giving us impossible standards to live up to. Don't think for a moment that he's telling us, "Hmm, I'm watching. I'm watching to see if you're keeping everything, and if you mess up one time... It's over. Don't think for a moment that what Jesus is demanding here is, well, perfection. Well, except, isn't that what Jesus says at the end in verse 48? I almost just didn't put that. I was going to just say that and move on and see if anybody noticed. But that's what Jesus seems to say right here. Look at it. Verse 48 which commentators will tell you is not just a summary of the last example, it's a summary of the entire set. 21 to 47 is summarized in verse 48, and here's what it says in the ESV. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So there it is. Now, again, Many have taken verse 48 as the interpretive lens for the six cases in 21 to 47, and that's surely correct. But, oh, listen to me, the damage that is done to our Christian ethics behavior or even our Christian life together if we misunderstand this interpretive lens. You got to get verse 48 right, and you're going to be on the right track with 21 to 47. We we get 48 wrong, verse 48 wrong, and you're going to be all messed up when you read these six cases. The word translated here, perfect, really should not be translated that way. And I looked, probably every version you're holding says perfect. So here's one of those preachers again telling us that all of our great scholarly translators... Have got it wrong. All right. Don't take my word for it. Listen to New Testament scholar Jonathan Pennington. We've got a brother back here, Eric Powell, had him for a professor. So he can give a thumbs up. Here's what Jonathan Pennington writes It is staggering to consider what negative impact the mistranslation of verse 48 has had on countless Christians through the centuries. Translate it perfect, and one of two things is probably going to happen. It's going to lead many to despair. That's how some of you feel right now. i got to keep all of this to perfection, or I'm outside the kingdom of God, under the wrath of God. Despair. That's what you feel. Or it has led countless others to a false sense of their own ability to live up to a sinless higher life. Both are wrong. See, all of this damage can be avoided if I think we just used a different English word to translate the Greek word here. Pennington suggests we use the word whole. Be whole, therefore, as your heavenly Father is whole. Or perhaps he suggests complete or even virtuous would do. Jesus is telling us in the way that we live, we are to be godlike, not in the sense of living up to ideals, because after all, if you think about it, there are no high ideals that God has to live up to. There are no standards of perfection by which God is evaluated. He's already perfect. The, yeah. He's he's complete. He's whole. That's the way that God is, and that's what's required of us, his people. We are to be whole. We are to be complete. It's not about whether or not we ever sin. If you take verse 48 that way, you're going to end up misunderstanding all six of the cases in 21 to 47. The issue here, the righteousness that God requires of us is a kind of godlikeness that God says we can and we must have. Verse 48 is another way of saying what God says in Leviticus 19.2. It goes like this. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. But God's holiness is... God's holiness is not about God avoiding sin. It's about God doing something about it. It is because God is holy that He is drawn towards sinners, not moved away from them. It is because God is holy that He is intent on delivering sinners from their sin, from their destruction from their incompleteness. To be holy as God is holy means that we must be, well, whole, W-H-O-L-E. It means that we must be intent on expelling every last element of the destructive realities that sin produces in our lives. So the greater righteousness that God requires of us is, should not be framed as merely Here's a list of rules. Avoid breaking them in any way. But instead, it's about addressing, engaging in, and eliminating every last sinister aspect of sin with God's overpowering love and grace. All right, now, the six test cases they expose some of those sinful, sinister aspects that often linger in our hearts. It's only when they are exposed, only when we see the righteousness that we lack, the incompleteness, that we can actually begin by the grace of God and in his power to do something about it, to address them. First, in verses 21 to 26, Jesus famously equates murder with anger and insulting speech. And again, no, this doesn't mean that if you're angry with someone, well, then you might as well just finish the job and do them off, right? If that was the case, I got nobody left to preach to in this room. What it means is that Jesus is quite serious about the warning signs of anger Damaging words. Jesus says, all of these make one equally deserving of God's wrath. Now, whether or not anger can ever be justified is not the issue here. Read your New Testament. Sure looks like Jesus gets angry at times. In fact, in Matthew twenty-three seventeen, he even calls people morons. Translated fools, the very thing he mentions here that we ought not do. So you got a problem if you're going to read it in that overly literalistic way. It's a mistake to call out someone's anger in a way that minimizes the reason for the anger. Anger is simply another fruit on the tree, just like murder, Jesus says, exposing that something is wrong and needs to be addressed. You find yourself angry, warning signs are going off. That's what Jesus is saying. This is not something you should ignore. This is something that needs to be addressed. Why are you angry? What are you going to do about it? The same thing, by the way, is true of the tongue, which Jesus brings in right here at this point as well. Whatever is in your heart is what comes out of the lips. I mean, inst- someone has observed that instead of ever saying to someone, I'm sorry that I said that horrible thing. I didn't mean it. If we're honest, what we ought to say is, I'm sorry I said that horrible thing that I meant. <laughs> See, the point is that Jesus is showing us that the surpassing righteousness that God expects, the surpassing righteousness we need is not merely to refrain from harming anyone. That's not good enough. We must go even further as the people of God, do every, doing everything we can That even as our catechism says, to even maintain and uphold one another's reputations. Hmm, Think of it. It's not just about don't murder someone. Jesus is saying we should be so for one another that we are eager even to make sure that we do not belittle someone's reputation. You can kill with a gun or a knife. Of course you can But you can also kill with your tongue, and in the kingdom of God, neither are acceptable. The hard issue in the second test, second set of verses, verses 27 to 30, is lust. This is what lies underneath the breaking of the seventh commandment, prohibiting adultery. But here again, we should consider lust not just as the root of adultery, but another leaf on the tree. Jesus is saying that the presence of lust, just like the presence of anger, should cause us to say, what is broken here? What is incomplete? What is not whole? By putting lust on par with adultery, Jesus leads us to see that what is wrong here is desire, misdirected, misappropriated. The problem with adultery is not with our sexuality, but with our improper use and control of it, God demands that we be complete, that we be whole, that our desires match our loves and our commitments. You can stay pure with your body, but if your heart has been given over to lust, you have become broken and are falling into beastly dehumanization. that sacrifices love on the altar of selfish gratification. In the kingdom of God, proper sexual behavior must be matched by the proper restraint on our sexual desire. The third example has to do with marriage and divorce. In just two verses, Jesus says something here that, by the way, has caused considerable consternation. For Christians struggling with marital difficulties and, too frequently, with divorce. Verse 32 is controversial. But like the others, this is not primarily a text laying out the law for when, if ever, divorce is allowed. There's plenty of other texts in the New Testament that we brought in to simply deal with that one subject. But what verse 32 is doing, like the other ones, is again, shining a light on yet another area of incompleteness, places where we might think we are outwardly conforming to the law of God, but there's still brokenness, there's still incompleteness that we can't ignore that we must address. In Jesus's day, there was quite a complacency about marriage, maybe not too unlike our day. And the one thing that Jesus is clearly doing here is making it nearly impossible for divorce to be legitimated, thus causing a disturbance that needs to be felt even in our day. In any situation where a marriage is threatened to fall apart, it simply must be said what the Bible is clearly teaching. God hates divorce. It is never his will. And yet, in the kingdom of God where marriage is to be permanent and those who wish to live in God's kingdom must fight for its permanency, there is, of course, right here, the exception clause. And here we can point out that the seriousness of sexual impurity in marriage discussed in the previous verses shows up again here, reminding us that usually, often, these two issues are related. Related. Sexual infidelity is the main cause of marriages falling apart. The fourth test case deals with the issue of truthfulness on matters, specifically in legal arrangements. That's what the ninth commandment is all about. So it's a serious issue. And when Jesus says in verse 34, do not take an oath at all, again, he's not abolishing the law, which at least two different places specifically requires an oath to be made. You can have an overly literalistic reading of this, as some Christians have done throughout church history, and yet what Jesus appears to be abolishing here is not the law that often required there to be an oath to be made, but our clever ways of getting around the truth, even when they appear to be legal. That happens in your own home, doesn't it? Telling the truth? Being a little misleading? Similarly, when Jesus says in verse 39, look at it very carefully, do not resist the one who is evil, he is not saying that evil is to be ignored. What he is saying is that the problem that we have in responding to evil is often that we respond in kind, returning evil for evil. The greater righteousness that God requires and exposes us for often not having is the same deceitful and revengeful hearts that everyone else has. Cannot be so in the kingdom of God. This is also why Jesus says in verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Now let's just be honest. No one does that. Yeah, no one loves their enemies. Well, I guess some, I've heard it, pray for their enemies. You know, God, take them down. God, wipe them out. Is that what he means? Mm -hmm. Yeah. If that's the way we respond to our enemies, if that's what praying for enemies means, then the vicious cycle goes on and on and on and on, doesn't it? Hmm. Every generation of Jesus followers must learn to pursue the greater righteousness of God's kingdom that the world knows nothing about. We have to learn how to do that in our day, with our challenges, with issues that we face that maybe previous generations knew nothing about. We have to be learned to be faithful in our day as citizens of God's kingdom that is here. So lastly then, how do we pursue the righteousness that is required for us to enter the kingdom of God? Remember, there's three parts to these six test cases. Here's the righteousness God requires. Here's Jesus' way of exposing the incompleteness that still seems to linger unaddressed, even when it looks like we're being obedient to what God expects. But Jesus doesn't just leave us there. He gives us a way to pursue it. In each of these cases, he shows us, here's what you do then about this lingering incompleteness in our lives. It's not that God is requiring perfection The answer to our imperfections is, of course, God's atonement. Already, already in the Old Testament, made plain, made obvious. Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. Your imperfections have been dealt with in the blood of Jesus Christ. But precisely because you've been atoned for, precisely because God has moved towards you in your sinfulness He wants you to be complete. He wants you to be whole. And so in each one of these cases, we find the way that Jesus provides for us to deliver us, to set us free from the broken cycles of sin that each of these represents. Undoubtedly, Jesus talked about plenty of other issues. It's not like these six are the only ones to look at, but they still seem so relevant to so many practical areas of our lives. I'm guessing that if you're like halfway paying attention today, that just reading through these six, you already know, ooh, that seems to be relevant to this situation in my life. This seems to be relevant to this relationship that I'm in. Is that the case? Am I guessing correctly? Okay, then let's see here what Jesus says about how we can pursue wholeness, pursue completeness as his citizens. For example... We're going back through them, and then we're done. One more time. Notice what Jesus says in verses 23 to 26. Here is the way out of the broken cycle of murderous anger and insults and biting tongues and gossip and tearing down people's reputations. Here's what he says, verses 23 to 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother, you guys know, when we read this, it's brother or sister, right? So, and there remember that your brother, your sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Okay. Now, Jesus' main point, I think, is, is clear here. If you are, here's what he says, but look at, how, look at how radical this is. If you are aware that someone has something against you, then you are told to take the initiative to resolve it. Huh. In Matthew 18, Jesus will put the responsibility for initiating resolution on the offended party. So, putting Matthew 18 together with what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 5, you see the radicalness of this? Whether you are the offended or the offender, in either case, In either case, the initiative is yours to seek resolution. I I don't know how many times, like, well, if you're offended, go talk to the person. That's one side of the equation. But if you know, if you are aware that someone has something against you, you're supposed to go. (laughs) What would relationships look like? if instead of waiting for the other person to initiate initiate resolution and peace, both parties took the initiative. That changed your marriage. That changed our neighborhoods. It would change our world. Why does Jesus leave the responsibility on both the offended and the offender? Because any hint of rupture In a relationship, is a warning sign that cannot be ignored. Why? Because in the kingdom of God, peace reigns. Peaceful relationships matter about as much as anything else we could think of. You know, somebody who is a little ticked at you, you go to them and seek resolution and peace, you are doing the work of the kingdom. And we can never give up on pursuing reconciliation with others. Verses 25 to 26 teach us this. Even if you're on your way to court, Jesus says, you should seek an agreeable settlement with the offended party. Now be careful Don't take verses 25 to 26 in an overly, overly literalistic way. I don't think this means that you are, if you're falsely accused, then you have to come up with some sort of compromise or admit some degree of guilt. What Jesus is giving us here are raise issues that can be complex, to be sure. But the point that he's making is this simple this relationships matter. And broken relationships are serious. And those who are citizens of God's kingdom must be known as people who are fervent about seeking peace. Remember what Jesus said in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I realize that the reference to offering your gift at the altar might be lost on us in our day. But it reinforces the biblical truth that our relationship with God, listen, our relationship with God cannot be right if our relationship with others is broken and left ignored. This is what Jesus teaches here. It's what Jesus himself exemplifies. The salvation that he provides can never be defined, listen, solely in terms of one's own personal relationship with God. To be saved in biblical terms does not simply mean God's okay with you now. It also means you must be okay. You must be made right with the rest of God's people. And we who follow Jesus must be committed to doing all that we can to maintain that peace that we have with one another in Christ we must fight fight for peace let's take the next two test cases together what does life in the kingdom look like and how we relate to one another as men and women it will be it will not be enough jesus has said to simply avoid adulterous acts lustful intent he says must sound off the same warning bells verses 29 to 30 Describe the path of deliverance then in the fight against temptations of lust. If in the first test case, Jesus is describing radical steps that we must take in the fight for reconciliation, the fight for peace, then he's doing the same thing here, and we all know it, right? Radical steps that must be taken in the fight against lust. Again, he's no doubt speaking hyperbolically, in order to highlight again just how seriously his people must address the temptations of lust. And oh, what a fight it will be. It's going to be far too easy to let ourselves off the hook with extremes. Some will tend to make excuses for it. We all know how ubiquitous and accessible sexual temptations are in our day. Let this not then become an excuse for gazing at what is forbidden... Just because a movie is a good story does not mean it is a good idea to let your eyes see the nudity that comes with it. Got a little quiet in here. This is not because, oh man, this is not because Christians are to be prudish in their sexuality. Far from it. I I think, I think recently We studied a book in the Bible that would tell us quite the opposite. The song of songs is in God's holy word. But what Jesus teaches here, the greater righteousness that we must pursue as Jesus' disciples is about refusing to fall for the objectification of one another that is being shoved down our throats Ironically, sometimes, by an industry that is outraged by the very objectification that they have perpetuated. The world knows no difference between love and lust. Jesus shows us the way. So it will not do to go to the other extreme and pretend that somehow we can do things to avoid sexual temptation altogether. Jesus teaches control of desire, not suppression of sexuality. And the reformer Martin Luther challenges us to the real fight when he wrote this. This is good. Listen, you have no call to pick up your feet and run away, but to stay put, to stand and battle against every kind of temptation like a knight, and with patience to see it through and to triumph. That's a good word. By the way, the same is true in marriage, as we must learn how to fight for healthy, enduring marriages by refusing to divorce on the one hand, and also by refusing to make our commitment to one another in marriage be some sort of cover for abusive relationships that need to be addressed. Things are simply not as clear-cut as sometimes we want to make them out to be. Following Jesus is always a way toward wholeness and completeness. The fourth test case points us to the kingdom value of truthfulness. And verse 37 is Jesus' way out of the broken cycles of lies and deceit and falsehood. Let what you say, Jesus says, simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. We live in a complicated world Largely because of the loss of truth. This is the nature of sin from the beginning as the story of Adam and Eve clearly shows us. And we've been fighting that battle ever since. And as Christians, we must fight for truth. The people of God are called to be not just truth lovers, radically committed to the truth. And that will not always be easy because we live in a world of lies The temptation we will face the most will be the temptation then to play by the world's game of falsehood, convincing ourselves at times that it is worth it in order to advance what we perceive to be other kingdom values. People of God cannot be known as people who perpetuate lies and falsehood. We can't do it. Jesus says we must not do it. The kingdom of God is a kingdom in which truthfulness abounds, and there's no question about it. Even if it costs us something, good and just and right, we must fight to be people of truth. The psalmist knows that the one who enters God's kingdom is a person who, this is Psalm 15, 4, swears to his own hurt and does not change. And this is going to lead us, of course, into plenty of ethical dilemmas such as we're faced during the Holocaust or in times of international conflict. But for the Christian, truth is a value of the kingdom. And the way out of the world of lies is to be radically committed to it. And then finally, in the last two test cases, notice the radical deliverance that Jesus provides in a world of hostilities. Now look. Brothers and sisters, when Jesus says in verse 39 that we are to turn the other cheek, he is not talking about giving in to evil and injustice. Commentators will tell you that what Jesus says here when he says, if someone strikes you on which cheek? Uh, well, don't be silly. <laughs> on the right cheek? There's a reason Jesus says that. A slap on the right cheek in the first century would be done with the back of the right hand. Right? You could see it. If you're going to hit somebody on the right cheek, you're either going to be left-handed, which most people aren't, or you're going to use your right hand and you're going to do it this way. What does that mean? What kind of a slap is that? Yeah, it is a hard slap, but here's the thing. It's a slap that indicates not so much the intent to injure, although it does that pretty well, but mostly it's a slap that intends to signify insult. This is the way that a Roman would, would slap his slave. So when Jesus says to turn the other cheek. This is not mere passivity, but the affirmation of one's own equality with the aggressor. You turn the left cheek, and you're basically saying this, hit me like an equal. It is encouraging disciples of Jesus to find creative ways of nonviolent resistance. The same thing, by the way, is what is going on in verses 40 to 41, where the reactions that Jesus encourages would have been other ways of exposing the injustice of another. Someone wants to take away your, your outer garment, give them the undergarments. Say, okay, is this what you intend to do? Literally take everything I have? Or Roman soldier tells you to go one mile, Roman law, allowed that. But no more than one mile, and yet you just keep on going, that Roman soldier is going to say, "Hey, wait, what are you doing here? I can now get in trouble for making you go further than I'm legally allowed to do. You see what's going on here? Creative ways of nonviolent resistance. We're not going to perpetuate the vicious cycle. But we are going to stand up to injustice. Why does Jesus command these kinds of responses? Because they work? Well, often they do. But only after long and costly work has been done. The better reason for why Jesus commands these kinds of responses is because they line up with the way that God himself is, with the way that God himself responds. They push us toward wholeness, toward completeness. We are to love our enemies. Why? Because God does that. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. We are most like God then when we love our enemies, pursuing them with a kind of love that the world simply would never know apart from the appearance of love himself in human form. Everyone loves their friends. There's nothing unique about doing good for people who do good to you, Jesus says. But the cycle of destruction is broken when love pursues even one's enemies and turns them into friends. This is exactly what God has done for you. It's what God has done for us. So our calling then, by his grace, is to go and bring the same love that transforms the world to our neighbors, to our enemies. May God give us the grace to do so. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you now to impress the words of Jesus deep within our hearts. Drive away the accusations of the evil one who says, see how imperfect you are. See how sinful you are. See how much you fall short of what God expects. And remind us that the blood of Christ speaks a better word. And it's precisely because of the atoning work of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's precisely because in him, all of our sins are forgiven. Then, and only then, do we have the power we need to pursue completeness, wholeness. We know our life is hidden with Christ in God. So even if we lose our life for the sake of the kingdom of God, we will, in the resurrection, take it up again. We can't lose. Indeed, that's what gives us the power to lose. Teach us, O Lord, how to be your people. And so to see in our day, in our place, in Oklahoma City, in this community, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, the effect of salt and light as we be your people and follow after you by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.